0: Virtual court hearings. We've seen an increase since COVID, but how effective are they? Police custody. Why are so many people detained and why do the courts make such different decisions to the police? Why do so many justice actors still follow debunked beliefs such as rational choice theory? We cover a lot of ground this episode. My name is Omar Phoenix Khan, and this is Justice Focus. Penelope Gibbs has been the director of Transform Justice since its foundation, but she previously worked as a radio producer at the BBC before being inspired to move into the voluntary sector. She set up the Voluntary Action Media Unit at Time Bank before she joined the Prison Reform Trust to run the Out of Trouble campaign to reduce child and youth imprisonment in the UK. Penelope has also sat as a magistrate. And is here today by popular demand, as two previous podcast guests have mentioned her work in their work. So, Penelope, welcome to Justice Focus.
1: Thanks very much.
0: You're welcome. And it's great to speak with you. And I'm glad I've caught you on a day when you're at home, because I know that even during this period of COVID lockdown, you've been out to courts to witness trials. So how has that been?
1: It's been absolutely fascinating and um I kind of think I'm one of the only people, apart from a few journalists, uh, outsiders who've been into magistrates' courts. And um, initially, I I thought, can I go? Because the government guidance Mm. was not clear at all whether going to a court was essential travel. And it took me ages to kind of summon up the courage, not really about the health risk. I I I felt I could withstand that, but I didn't want to be stopped Mm. by the police on the way to the court and uh, so it took me about two or three weeks i wish i'd gone in on that period actually because i think it would have been different to what i've seen but then i Mm. did summon up the courage and you know i would encourage anybody to sit in a magistrate's court because it it really is fascinating to see what kind of cases come through how they're dealt with It's different in the pandemic, but there's some, you know, some of the same as well. And the first Mm. court I went to to observe was, in fact, the one where I sat as a magistrate myself. So Highbury Magistrates Court.
0: Yeah, well, of course, I wanted to ask you about your time as a magistrate. But just, I guess, off off the top, when you were observing recently, did you notice any extreme or overt differences to when you were sitting yourself?
1: I mean, what what you see in terms of cases is quite different at the moment because they're only dealing mm. with with what they call remand cases, where it's people who've been both detained but in police custody, but also, but post charge. So they've been charged right. and then what's called remanded by the police, and those are the only ones appearing. And normally in magistrates' mm. courts, those those people always appear in the dock. Um, and I mean I don't like that but at the moment what's really different is you only hear those cases though in fact this most recent visit I I saw a trial as well so they're just beginning those in magistrates courts Mm. but it's nearly always these first appearances and what's completely different is that most of them uh, the defendants and in some cases, the lawyers are appearing on video into the court. So in the court, right. in the court, you've got the judge, the legal advisor, and sometimes the prosecutor, but not mm-hmm. always. And so you get these um, heads on the screen, and mm. y- all these hearings. Uh, it's it's you know this mixed method of in the physical court and video Mm. um must
0: be so strange this floating head courtroom
1: it's strange and really really concerning so Mm. uh, for the last three four years uh i've been following the progress of the government's digital court reform program, which involves an increase in video hearings. So I'd already kind of been across the research and in fact had gone to observe the only court in the country where they, at that point, you know, pre-COVID did these hearings from the police station into the magistrates court, which was in Kent. Mm. And so I'd already seen that in practice. I'd seen video hearings from prisons into courts. And I'd read all the research and done actually our own research. We we uh, produced a report and I was already worried about the impact on effective participation, access mm. to justice and also fair outcomes. And having seen uh, this in the pandemic, it's... Um, hasn't allayed my fears or my concerns. All those of other people, in fact. Um, Mm. You know, a lot of people are concerned about it. So one of the problems is that these video uh, rooms in in police custody suites have been set up in a real hurry and the equipment is not very good. So Mm. the cameras, the sound, the sound is particularly bad. Um, And so you've you've technically got these video links like Microsoft Teams or Zoom or whatever, but it's far, far worse than, you know, professionals are experiencing at the moment in terms of quality. And, Mm. And the defendant is definitely further from the camera. So they appear more distant. And then in the magistrate's court, the screens are up on a wall quite high. They're not very big. And you yeah. have to kind of swivel to see them. So so you're seeing the the screen with the defendant on, and in fact the lawyer some of the time, at an angle. So it, it's very unsatisfactory either for the judge or for yeah. somebody in the public gallery to actually properly get a, a, a view of, of mm. the defendant and the lawyer. So the tech is poor because it's been set up in a hurry. Um, and... The systems of the defendant being able to communicate with their lawyer have broken down as well. So, yeah, normally you have um, a defendant would have a pre-hearing uh, consultation with their lawyer. It makes sense, mm. doesn't it? They need to discuss, you know, what they're accused of, what they're gonna, whether they're gonna plead guilty or not guilty. All this kind of stuff, really important stuff, and a lot of the time, the, yeah. the lawyer has not met that defendant in their life before, so yeah. it's quite important to have a a meeting, ideally face to face. So you would have thought, well, maybe they could get a meeting on video. That is not happening, as far as I can work out. So all so you,
0: the defendants not having any kind of contact with their
1: they are having their contact, legal counsel before, but they right. just phone. Phone that, by phone, okay. That's yeah. all they can manage, and as far mm. as I can work out, they're quite short phone calls, uh, mm. and you can tell sometimes in in the hearing. So one hearing I saw, um, a defendant came up uh, on video from a London police station into the court in Highbury, and mm-hmm. the judge said, "Is this your client?" And the lawyer who was actually in the court in this case said, "I don't know." Wow. Well, because they had yeah. only spoken or tried to speak. This was, in fact, a client with mental health problems. So they tried to yeah. speak to the client, but I think that they'd only had a couple of words. Mm. And, and then during the hearings, whether the lawyers uh, in the court, which is sometimes happening, uh, or on video they then having known very little about the case beforehand sometimes they then can't communicate with their with, with the defendant so mm. normally even if the defendant is in the dock which is I, I as i say i I'm really don't like the use of the dock at all but you can uh the lawyer can kind of have a whispered conversation with the defendant or the judge can leave the court if they need to talk in the middle of the hearing. But here, you know, with the lawyer in the court and the defendant on video, or even worse, the lawyer on video and the defendant on video, there's no way that the defendant can properly communicate with with their lawyer during the hearing.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a logistical nightmare and I mean, it feels like there's just so many different layers of or levels of justice. <laughs> like, How can you possibly have a equal level of treatment if, if people are in those situations? I just want to ask you briefly, because I, I, just because you touched on it, you mentioned about not really liking when the defendant's in the dock at this point. Could you just say why you feel uncomfortable with that?
1: Because I think it labels them as guilty. It it labels them as dangerous, and I I don't see the point. Yeah. you know uh, the fact yeah. is we are practically the only country in the Western world which puts um, people on their first appearance in 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 a criminal court in a dock, mm. and it it it's excluding. It, I mean, some of them are. Not so badly designed, but I mean, it's a it's a glass box. It's a perspex box, uh, and yeah. when somebody comes into court from that, you know, of, obviously it looks, you know, all the all the symbolism of that is that they are dangerous uh, and probably mm. more likely to be guilty. And actually, yeah. when you analyse, uh, I mean there's There's people like uh, Linda Mulcahy who've done brilliant work on this, but I'm afraid nothing has changed. And if you analyze mm-hmm. those who appear in the dock in magistrates' courts, the vast majority are in fact released by the court. So there wasn't yeah. much point having them in the dock in the first place. but But what I would say is having been in a court been in courts recently, where, there are some defendants are being brought into court in the dock even in the pandemic so they're not appearing from the police stations just a few Mm. and the difference is immense even to have you know even in the dock so I think my view Mm -hmm. of some people have said oh you know video hearings it's no worse than being in the dock I now totally disagree the 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 presence mm-hmm. of the individual in the court is completely different even if they're in the dock versus on a video hearing
0: and do you think that's now the feelings of those working in the courts as well so of course on the other side of the argument we have the idea that there will be money saved on not having to move defendants to court and back and they're able to deal with a backlog of cases much faster so In this, given both of these arguments, have you seen judges and magistrates become more disgruntled by the reality of the process? And do you get the impression that there'll be more opposition from those groups in future?
1: I mean, I hope in the future, obviously, at the moment, there are conflicting priorities because Mm. the reason given for not bringing defendants to the courts is to, to... restrict the number of places the defendant is in terms of the health risk hmm. and and you know I, I i can understand that so the idea is if they're brought to court they've got to go into the court cells, they've got to be dealt with by court staff whereas if they're already in custody you know they're already in custody yeah. so i think temporarily people are all accepting the status quo hmm. um I, I and there's. And so the 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 health um, the health risk is is conflict is is definitely conflicting. I think with with the uh the standards of justice. Hmm. I, I just hope that all those involved who are accepting what we're doing because of the health risk will stand back very soon when when the kind of risk eases and hmm. say that was not a good idea that is a, a risk to justice uh, and so on and yeah. by the way i'm not at all convinced that this is um this saves money i right. think
0: okay.
1: i think the government uh has committed to a program on the basis that it will save money they have committed to a program of more video hearings more online justice um But certainly on the video hearing side, uh, I cannot see how it saves money, partly because to do it properly, they actually have to triple or quadruple the amount they spend on the technology because at the moment it's pretty ropey. Mm -hmm. Um, And also somehow the technology is so... um, is such that the hearings, there's huge technical problems and massive delays between hearings and so on. And that's where you can see judges and prosecutors kind of tearing their hair out, is more mm. about the technical problems than the... I mean, I think they're sort of just accepting the the system because of the health risk at the moment, but they're certainly um, frustrated by those. And mm. I could see that cases were backing up in the magistrates' courts, I saw. And I was worried that, that those court staff were going to be sitting way into the evening in order just mm-hmm. to get through the cases. Yeah. So, so I personally, and I'm not an economist, so I find it really, really hard to kind of grapple with these things. But mm-hmm. I can't see that the sums really add up because mm. um, y- you've still got to have, I think, some people as this word produced, which is a bit jargony, but some people come to court in person because mm. I think the, the research is pretty clear that for those with learning difficulties and mental health problems and so on, it, it really is discriminatory to be on video. So yeah. if, if they're going to have those people come to court, certainly post-pandemic, uh, then you've got to have two parallel systems going on at the same time anyway. So if uh, that's uh, you know I I'd love to have I'd love to see the the costs uh, you know calculations on this because the government's never published them, but hmm. but what they're assuming is that they can close lots and lots of courts court buildings yeah. at, and replace the court buildings with with hearings on video.
0: Yeah, and I know that this is being considered at all different parts of the process, so for bail or remand hearings, as well as the full trials. And I've seen research from other countries that have suggested that for those attending court via video link from detention, they've tended to have to been found guilty more often than those people who have come to court themselves and able to wear their own clothes and have access to a lawyer more readily. And so there may be something important here about the presumption of innocence, or perhaps we should really be saying or thinking about the presumption of guilt.
1: I I think the answer is we we just have so little research and the government Hmm. for its own reasons has not invested in research which would give us that answer so actually interestingly we have no research to say that that original bail remand decision you know when somebody pleads not guilty whether they're remanded or not there's Mm. no research to say that video makes a difference to to that decision Mm. where we have uh two reports uh indicating uh differential decisions are about immediate custodial sentences so quite a lot of these people who appear it's their first appearance um if they plead guilty the judge can sentence them as it were on the spot to a custodial sentence Mm. and both uh, there were there've been two reports so obviously somebody like myself just doesn't have the access to the data to really be able to judge it but there've been two reports one in 2010 commissioned by the government and one just uh, published a month ago by the university of surrey both mm-hmm. of which looked at these first appearances at, and took a stab at, at whether the outcomes were different mm. in in the first report um the kind of concerning aspect was both that more people pleaded guilty when they appeared on video, but also that more people seem to get immediate custodial sentences. And then the, the second, the university of Surrey research actually, uh, Again, they found quite, quite starkly that more people who appeared on video seemed to get these immediate custodial sentences, but they mm. didn't get the same finding about guilty pleas. And then the other um, concerning findings from both these reports was that those on video appeared to be less likely to take up um, their right to legal representation, mm. to have a lawyer. So uh the 2010 report and the Surrey one both found a smaller percentage of defendants on video having a lawyer and obviously that's critical to whether defendants uh get justice yeah. in our system where unrepresented defendants um it's really hard we have such mm. a complicated system um yeah. so so those so we've got those really concerning indicators, but we don't have, you know, big data to back them up. And the government has over time been asked again and again to gather it. But I think they're so committed to their digital court reform programme that they is, as it were, fear to gather that data in case it gives the wrong answer.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is concerning. And um, I'm just going to reiterate the name of that report that you that you've written on this which was defendants on video a conveyor belt of justice or a revolution in access I'll put I'll make sure I put a link to that in the uh, show notes for this so that people can read that full report if they'd okay. like to um and I urge them to because that's a really really interesting and thorough report but so this is um, I've just mentioned the transform justice website can you tell us a little bit about what transform justice is and and actually maybe even before that, um, I know that your career initially was in uh, radio production, and so was there a particular moment that took you from that to delve into the world of the voluntary sector? And uh, you're clearly incredibly passionate about this world, but um, how does that link with where you, where you started?
1: I mean, i i didn't I didn't grow up, uh, you know, political with a small p, caring. Hmm. Well, I did care about social justice, but I wasn't it wasn't it Wasn't your thing. No, wasn't my thing. But then I became um a radio producer and I did a lot of work on Women's Hour, which is a very issue based program. Hmm. And when I was there I did a lot of uh producing of discussions and um You know uh, reports about justice, actually quite a lot about family justice. So that got me interested, but I also had the sort of light bulb moment that um, if I wanted to kind of change the world, it I could stay in radio, but it might be better to move into the voluntary sector. So Mm -hmm. um, I I moved into the voluntary sector, and at the same time, I, I actually applied to be a magistrate and started that as a another means of kind of making a difference in the Mm. world. And um, I sat as a magistrate for three years while I was at my first charity, which wasn't a justice charity, uh, and then set up... No, then I went to the Prison Reform Trust um, Mm -hmm. and, and took a job there to campaign for a reduction in the number of children and young adults imprisoned in the UK... Mm-hmm. And and that kind of then I got the bug, really. So I was already interested in justice, but I'm very interested in lots of social justice issues. But mm. but after starting at Prisoner Reform Trust, which was a five year project, yeah. I, I, you know, I got the bug and it stayed with me.
0: Yeah. And you can tell by looking at your work and your website, actually, that it's not just the standalone specific issues that you're interested in, but this larger scale Changed and being part of a progressive movement. And I specifically mention your website because I really like the section that identifies how we can think about reframing the messaging around criminal justice to try and counter some of the mainstream stereotypes around justice and perhaps some of the political apathy that's linked to certain kind of reform efforts. So I wondered, could you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on reframing the messaging around criminal justice?
1: I mean, this is this is quite a different strand from some of the other work which we do, which is kind of quite traditional in terms of we research, we do a report, and then we try and, you know, uh, get people to take up the recommendations.
0: Mm. And
1: it was a few years ago... Um, with With colleagues in the sector outside transform justice we we just had these discussions and about how we you know we weren't getting very far in our advocacy. shall I say we were hitting our head mm. against a brick wall again and yeah. again and that we needed to seek something bigger to get us to uh, make more progress, and particularly about our messaging. So what mm-hmm. is evident is that public opinion, top-line public opinion, it is quite into um, tough justice in this country. Yeah. And we knew that, and we knew that was an impediment every time we spoke to Politicians and sometimes the media, even politicians who were sympathetic themselves mm. to more progressive system. So we had heard about a uh, technique which was being pioneered by an organisation in the USA called the Frameworks Institute,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: took, um, which basically used research to uh, arrive at more effective ways of communicating about social issues and they start with a anthropological approach so the idea is you know they would say you you can't even and i agree with them you can't even start on communication unless you understand people's belief system about that subject and Mm. so they start off by doing a a kind of anthropological uh, approach to finding out about the belief system in a particular country so they Interviewed people in this country about broadly uh why people commit crime and how to stop people committing crime mm-hmm. uh, and that is the kind of bedrock of uh the work that we did so it actually supported uh our, unfortunately uh the the idea that um People and here i'm not i actually think it's everybody so i think it's we shouldn't be an us and them about this we all Mm -hmm. have these beliefs to a greater or lesser extent but that um you know there was a strong belief in deterrence in in the effectiveness of punishment in reducing Mm. crime a very that what a belief which I think is absolutely central, particularly in Anglo-Saxon societies, which is um, what we call rational actor, which is that people who commit crime have made a deliberate, rational choice weighing up the advantages of doing the Mm -hmm. crime versus both the chance of being caught and the sanctions involved in being caught. Mm -hmm. And therefore, uh, then that that these are individual rational choices, yeah, and that belief, if you think about it, runs through uh, our beliefs often about poverty, homelessness, obesity, addiction, yeah. that it is the individual rational choice um, yeah. to to get into that situation and you know, th- I think that that was a real, perhaps the most important finding of uh, the research because it also leads to um, it being totally logical and understandable why people believe in harsh punishment and deterrence. Because if you Mm -hmm. think that people are making a rational choice, um, if you believe people are making a rational choice then you know you're going to think well if you have a harsh punishment if you increase the harshness of punishments it will deter people making that rational choice from making the choice to to commit a a crime Uh, and so we did um, we commissioned that initial research and then uh, Frameworks Institute did a refining kind of uh, bit of research which was Looking at what particular values and metaphors might work to mm. um, get people to engage with a more progressive system, uh, but I think the beliefs are the key one, and what it's it's quite you know it's not easy working with them. So what mm. frameworks would say as well is you know those we can't shift you know a few charities and academics even can't shift those beliefs you have to kind of work with and around them and you know over 20 years you might be able to shift the beliefs a bit but actually I think they would say you can work with those beliefs to still get a a buy-in to some progressive reforms but you have Mm -hmm. to you have to respect the beliefs as beliefs you know they they may not be Uh, in line with technical evidence, academic evidence, Mm. but beliefs are very, very strong.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and they play to people's sort of deep-seated instincts about things, their emotional reactions to things rather than logical, overt, fact-based thought.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I, I don't know if you've read Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow...
0: Oh yeah, no, so I haven't read it, but I know the premise, so I, I should read it at some point.
1: <laughs> it speaks to that a bit because basically, yeah. what that says is it, it's an illusion that that we think uh, very, as it were, very deeply about everything, um, mm. and very it, it, in a very logical and uh, way. Most of our kind of thoughts are are simply picking up existing beliefs and working, yeah. you know. They're sort of instinctive thoughts, as it were.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really interesting, that this point about instinctive beliefs, even of those that we're unaware of. And when we're talking about criminal justice and decision-making, I think that the illusions of meritocracy or of a just world hypothesis, these kind of linger as an undercurrent in people's minds. So those who have done well or find themselves in higher positions of power believe that they're there because... They are—they got their due to merit and their own hard work, and nothing else. So they don't consider their own privileges or how circumstances may have been in their favour, and so they feel that they deserve to be there. And then, likewise, there's—you know—that those that appear in the courtroom, there's the logic is that they must also, on one level, deserve to be there as well. Again, negating many of the actual circumstances that may have contributed. To getting there in the first place and I guess this links back to what you were saying at the beginning about rational choice theory and how this allows people to follow the logic that that somebody has weighed up the consequences of their actions and then made an educated decision about what to do so I really like this part of your website that challenges these deep-seated beliefs and shows you know which which kind of beliefs we shouldn't try and trigger when we're talking about different criminal justice narratives and actually offer some that are more advantageous yeah. for reform.
1: Exactly. I mean, what what's hard is you need people to understand this research and to adopt it kind of incredibly mm. widely because, you know, the, the beliefs uh, are strong and the government you know, sometimes plays to the beliefs the other way from us, as it were. Mm. So, you know, they play to the belief in deterrence and and greater punishment. Uh, And and I in the moment, I think there's a real uh, challenge because as I understand it, the government is very dependent on uh, focus groups for its policies. And Mm. if you do that on criminal justice at the moment, you will get a harsher system.
0: Yeah, the the vast majority of people are much more energized by this idea of crisis and um, human nature and moral breakdown. I'm, I'm literally quoting off your website here about mm. these, these two things that, that energize people to, to want to be against something. And it's much harder to energize people about contextual fairness or rehabilitation, which... Which in the long term may actually help some of their concerns, but... Aren't the kind of things that energise people to go out and vote?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, I think those beliefs are there, and I think sometimes, you know, even talking to friends or whatever, that you you can get both. I mean, what's interesting about the beliefs as well is that beliefs which apparently conflict can be present in the in a person at the same time. And, and yeah. so, you can get somebody who, on the one hand, seems quite punitive but also has a belief in rehabilitation
0: mm, uh,
1: and mm. And so, for us, you know, we need to just get smarter. It's about being yeah. smarter about the way we communicate and yeah. And I would say that I think academia needs to come into this fold as well and um because in in the states frameworks, original uh, work was on child development and that was inspired mm. by a group of academics who felt that they were hitting their uh, heads against a brick wall in terms of trying to get people to understand the you know what what makes for healthy child development mm. um so i think i think you know it would be good if academics did uh you know get across uh this challenge as well
0: mm. And I know that you talk about the benefits of telling a story rather than just sort of showing facts.
1: Yes. I mean, it's telling a story as in, uh, you know, explaining what the problem is, kind Mm. of expounding on what that, you know, expounding on what the problem is and then giving a solution. It's that kind of story as opposed to personal stories of individuals. Um, And I think that just uh, we've all, including uh, Transform Justice, made the mistake of kind of assuming too much knowledge or going immediately to the problem without establishing why anybody should care about it. And that's Mm. what you've got to do with a value. You've got to hook people in to why they should care. Uh, And uh, we've we've just sort of assumed people care and, and gone straight in Mm. Uh, or we've produced um, lots and lots of problems with never a solution. And that, that feeds into a belief that's already there about crime, which is fatalism that it will always have crime. Nothing we can do about it, and that belief is very strong. So mm. if you if you keep talking about the problems and don't give solutions, you feed that belief.
0: Yeah, definitely. Brilliant. Thank you. It's so interesting, and I, I really urge everybody to to go and look through that because it, it, you know, it's um it's a it's a broad framework that can be applied to lots of different aspects within criminal justice. But I think it's a really re- refreshing way, and it's, it's set out. So, accessibly, um, that I'd really encourage people to look at that. Okay, we, we also need to talk about a new report that you've just released, which is on the overuse of police custody. And so, you've kindly recorded a clip for us related to that. But before I play that clip, is there anything you'd like to say about why you have written this report recently or the process of putting it together?
1: Ah. Uh... I would say it kind of it relates to other work we've been doing, and that often is what happens with transforms justice work. One thing leads to another or raises mm. a question. So we have done um a lot of work on the overuse of prison remand, so uh, detention without pretrial. And yeah. you know actually, probably uh, the biggest practical way we could reduce that is to prevent the police keeping, detaining so many people post charge in, in the mm. pl- police custody suite. So when we did the, the work on Roman, we thought, well, what's going on in police custody? What, why mm. is it being used and so on? And w- we already obviously had a kind of indication that maybe that was overused as well, but we, we wanted to work out what was going on. And over the last year, we've, we've you know, done interviews, got uh, research, FOIs, etc., uh, and then mm-hmm. produced our
0: report. Yeah, I've heard people talk about this part of the process as being particularly hard to access or witness, as when a person's first brought in, the police are working hard to try and ascertain whether the person can be charged or not. And so it's a particularly difficult time to I mean, research.
1: I'm not sure that 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 it that sounds like the police, uh, you know, are actively making a decision about it. Whereas actually, it's it's partly about tradition and culture. Uh, mm. You know, this is police custody has been as it is now for for decades more or less, right. and um, the the challenge is that it is a closed space. I mean, it is basically a form of imprisonment controlled by the police Mm -hmm. and so you know you can't go and observe or i mean they let some people but i mean it's certainly not a public gallery as it were and the data is pretty poor and also the Mm. other huge challenge that we had is that nobody it wasn't on anybody's agenda nobody seemed to think there was a problem about this at all if you yeah. if you talk to lawyers they will you know they will definitely be vocal about it but but it but nobody it wasn't in uh, no conversations so initially we thought mm, you know uh, is there anything you know worth looking at here um yeah. and it's peculiar in criminal justice so there's some things which are just kind of like off the radar and and kind of, as it were, accepted. No matter what people say, police custody is, it's got to be done, but I think it's a form of abuse. That's a quote from a defendant. In the pandemic, legal representatives have been concerned about going into police custody due to the infection risk but they've gone in or given advice from home, usually by phone. The Crown Prosecution Service has suggested that criminal cases should be rigorously assessed against the public benefit test to prevent so many cases being charged. Many were expecting a sea change in the use of custody, but having observed courts recently, I'm not convinced much has changed. I saw a young black man who'd been arrested and detained by the police for possession of a small amount of cannabis and several who'd been arrested for the sole crime of being in the wrong area, breach of a criminal behaviour order. A lawyer recently wrote on Facebook of a young man being arrested and detained for criminal damage for putting a frozen chicken next to a cooked one. This prompted an argument between the young man and his mother, who called the police. The man was detained for 14 hours, then released on pre charge bail. Transform Justice has just published a report on the overuse of police custody. We started with an open mind, but were aware that many of those detained post-charge were released by the court, and we wondered why the court and police were making such different decisions. Our research and conversations do suggest that custody is the default option in circumstances where it probably shouldn't be. Problems start when a suspect is brought to the custody suite by the arresting officer. The custody officer has to decide whether the suspect should be detained in the cells. PACE guidance is a little vague but gives lots of discretion to the custody officer to refuse to detain a suspect. But they refuse on less than 1% of occasions. This is so few that researchers have referred to automatic detention. Most suspects have no idea that they themselves could challenge the decision to detain. Once someone is detained, usually so the police can investigate, suspects are held in pretty grim conditions. Police cells are clean but bare, often windowless, with no clock. The experience of being in a police cell is stressful for most people, making the most confident person feel vulnerable.
0: Okay, thank you for that clip. There's so many interesting points there. and I've got several questions for you and a couple of things that stood out for me first of all that I'd like to ask you about is you talk about this idea of automatic detention and at least that's how it feels sometimes and, and actually how it is possible for detainees to challenge that and so I wanted to ask you about how that might work in reality if it ever does and also then this idea of how the police's decision making is very different to that decision making in the courts.
1: I mean, I have to say the ability of the detainee to challenge the original de- decision to detain them is totally and utterly theoretical. Um, mm. You know, I I think that everybody involved in that process and, and they call it booking in, actually yeah. act as if that's what it is. And, yeah. you know, the power dynamic is such that even though technically a detainee could challenge their detention it would be mighty difficult you need to know all the legal grounds uh why somebody can be detained and not detained and then in terms of the power power dynamic there's the police custody sergeant and you Um, Mm. i mean very very unequal with no scrutiny by anyone else so so the decisions are written on custody records but we we couldn't find that anybody kind of went over those records really and said, oh, was in retrospect, was that dis- detention really, you know, uh, yeah. right? So, and then the disparity with the courts. I mean, mm. the irony is we feel that the courts remand too many uh, people into prison, but mm. police remand even more. So yeah. it's for a much shorter time. So what happens is... The police have got 24 hours after detaining somebody to either charge them or not. And mm. if, if they don't charge them, they've got to release them. If they do charge them, they can still release them or they can keep them in custody until they're called appearance. And then yeah. they have to get them into the, the into court as soon as they can, which is the next working day or a Saturday morning. Um, what we found is that the proportions for particular offences who were detained um, by the police post-charge were were much higher than uh, even the court. So for instance, for summary offences, which are the least serious, um, mm-hmm. I'm not saying they're not important, but they're the least serious, including-
0: Comparably. Yeah,
1: yeah they're motoring offences as well. The courts um, remand something like four times, no, sorry, the police remand something like four times more proportionately than the courts. Um, Hmm. So they're making this risk-based decision even more cautiously than the courts.
0: Yeah. And playing devil's advocate there, does it not make sense for the police to do that so that the decision can be made by the courts rather than the police?
1: But the courts are going to make that decision anyway. Uh, it's just that, you know, the presumption should be for bail, for freedom yeah. in the community, pending mm-hmm. any decision by the court. And I mean, I didn't put it in the report because I found it out later. But I mean, reading up about European systems, uh, ours gives more, much more time to the police than some other European systems. So, we mm. have this 24 hours up to charge and then you, the police can keep them until the court hearing, which can be another 48 hours. Whereas right. in lots of European countries, um, the police have got 24 hours altogether. So mm. from uh, detaining the person to getting them in front of a judge, they've got the 24 hours. So that's very yeah. different to our system.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I I do a lot of work in Brazil as well, and the custody hearings there have to be within twenty four hours. And it's yeah, it's it's interesting when something is so normalised here, and we don't realise that actually things are very different elsewhere. Um, yeah, really interesting. In the report, you've got several sections that I wanted to ask you about because um, I know that you have a section talking about people being held while in mental health crisis. And I wondered if you wanted to mention anything about that.
1: I mean, I would say that I think there's been huge progress on this. So there Mm -hmm. has been um, a real focus on avoiding deaths in custody. So uh, Dame Elish Angelini did an important report for the government making recommendations on how to uh, avoid more deaths in custody, uh, particularly suicides. And mm. um, as a result of that, one of the recommendations was that those who were um, in real mental health crisis, who were um, needed to be in a secure unit really in, in a mental health facility, should not be kept in police custody. So mm. um, now those numbers have reduced quite a lot. So those are the what we would call the sectionable people. Yeah. Um, and they are now taken straight to hospital most of the time. The, the grey area is people who have mental health problems but aren't sectionable, whereby they appear nothing much seems to have changed apart from probably... Being looked after better while they're in custody, um, mm. and you know, nobody knows. But up to twenty percent, they think, have mental health problems who who are in police custody, and there mm. are there's better there should be better assessment of uh, su- such issues because we've got liaison and diversion services, health services in police custody yeah. suites. But what seems to happen is the assessment is made um, and that's good that we have the information, but it doesn't really seem to make any difference to whether somebody is released from custody or not. If they're going to be released, they will be, but but the mental health issue doesn't doesn't seem to be a prompt to that. And Mm. um, actually, you know... However much they try, it's an incredibly stressful experience to be in police custody. Uh, yeah. This is a place where you may not really understand why you're there. You uh, are in a cell which is pretty bare to to kind of you know avoid people uh, you know using anything for self harm. Mm. Uh, you might be given a tiny bit of reading material, but you have no phone. You don't even know the time, you know, you, you, and people. Yeah. So inevitably, if, if you have mental health problems, you're going to feel uh, a darn sight worse being in police custody. And I would mm. see this as a group to um, look at uh, reducing the number in custody. But actually, it's 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 everybody, because if they were... Uh, tighter in their criteria for whom they detain, it would benefit both those with mental health problems and others.
0: Yeah. Well, and and thinking about who gets detained and who doesn't, I know in the clip that we've just heard, you mentioned how especially young black men have been treated differently in terms of um, being arrested and being brought in, perhaps being in the wrong place or for small amounts of weed or something like that. Do you feel that actually you know being in police custody is one thing but actually it's the step before that about who is chosen to bring in to that space in the first place?
1: Yeah and there we 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 don't know nearly enough so there's hmm. no um we we know that of those arrested 22% are from BAME communities. And so mm-hmm. probably all of those are also detained or nearly all of them. But we have no breakdown, actually, of police custody numbers by ethnicity. Um, yeah. I mean, inevitably, we do know that there's disproportionality both on stop and search and on arrest and, and through the system. So it it makes sense that it also happens in custody. But actually, interestingly... Um, we had an event earlier this week about the report and there was a paralegal there who works uh, gives legal advice in custody and he really mm-hmm. he felt strongly that there was a uh, a kind of racial bias not so much on who's detained in the first place but this second decision to detain post-charge he felt mm. at that point there were there was um uncalled unconscious bias. Mm. Um, and I'm afraid it's it's one of those things where we just don't have the information. And without that, you yeah. can't really... I mean, obviously, unconscious bias training is good per se, but we can't move forward on the basis of knowing whether his personal experience in London is, is common.
0: Yeah, of course. And I mean, there've been people highlighting these issues and researching in this area for a long time but hopefully with this extra attention from this summer the government will see how important it is to collect and interrogate these statistics and you know there are clear racial biases in many places and we need to be able to shine a light on certain hidden corners of the system.
1: I mean I'd really like to see evidence about the pandemic so we've We've got some evidence that possibly those with, um, in, in terms of the fixed penalty fines for during mm-hmm. COVID-19, that there's a disproportionality with BME um, people there, that they've got uh, a greater proportion of fines. But certainly my anecdotal feeling from sitting in the magistrates' courts is that there was a very high proportion of BME defendants. So mm. I, I wonder if actually during COVID, any disproportionality there was pre COVID is, is is different.
0: Hmm. Well, yeah, that'd be really interesting. Let's, I really hope somebody is doing that research for sure. Um I wanted to ask you about the immigration detainees who you talk about as falling between the gaps potentially in, in this part of the system.
1: Yeah, I mean to be honest, uh it was in our radar, but not the focus. And I think it's mm-hmm. one of those things where talk about forgotten detainees. Uh, there's evidence from inspection reports that they wait a huge amount of time in custody. And unfortunately, the custody officers have no um, power to, to release them. Um, mm-hmm. So I wish I could say more. But in, in doing this kind of work, what you find is you think, oh, there's only a, you know, this is going to be relatively simple. And then you start digging and it has such immense complexities, some mm. of which you can't really, uh, you know, do much detail about.
0: Yeah. Okay. And, you know, I know we've, we've talked a lot about making changes and affecting policy. And there is a section at the end of the report that is that brings together conclusions and recommendations. So I just wondered if, if there were one or two that you wanted to mention now about some of the things that we could do in future.
1: I mean, I think the first recommendation is very important. And it's I'm not sure if guidance is the answer, but somehow we need to get custody officers who have the theoretical power to challenge a lot of these detention decisions Mm. to have the confidence and the ability to do so. Um, Mm. Because ultimately, I can't see that, you know, that initial decision to detain somebody, that we're ever going to get much outside scrutiny into that. So I, I think... And it's really hard because what we're talking about is the dynamic of police on police, mm. uh, and and people kind of challenging their own colleagues. Really difficult. Yeah. So it's 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 a skill, and uh, I think I think the the police would accept that that is is an area to develop. And the other one is, in the end, there is this massive lack of scrutiny of what goes on, and um. I mean, one thing I would love would be for more lawyers to sue for wrongful, dis- wrongful imprisonment, which is actually a, a civil process, but um, it's done very little because I think that that would kind of provide a bit more scrutiny. Um, but equally, mm. I, I think there is a role for, for, for sort of scrutiny panels, for volunteers to look at, uh, you know, data and custody records and maybe talk to people about what's going on um Mm. because people look at the welfare aspects but it's not their remit to look at the decision to detain or the length of detention or or any of these things really and we already have scrutiny panels for stop stop and search volunteer scrutiny panels we have Mm -hmm. uh scrutiny panels looking at out-of-court disposals and their usage and uh I, I wouldn't want a, yeah another scrutiny panel, but I'm sure one could expand the remit of one of these to, to look mm. at this issue.
0: Yeah, so there's some kind of oversight and reflection because no matter how well anybody in management might feel that their department are doing or whoever it might be, there's always scope to improve. So it doesn't even have to be in sort of an accusatory framework saying this is necessarily bad, but just any department in good practice should be reflecting on how they can perform better
1: and and i think the police want to do that so i in my work i never want to blame individuals or institutions i think everybody is is wanting to make the world a better place whether they be police or judges or prosecutors or any of these people so Mm -hmm. so i think it's to find ways where that will help them uh challenge their own practice
0: no, thank you. And yeah, so we've, we've touched on a couple of those recommendations, but there are several in there. So again, I encourage people to go and, and look at all the full recommendation list there. But I wanted to finish on your hopes for your long term impact. So this, for Transform Justice, but for you and your work, what do you see as impact? And what do you hope to achieve?
1: I mean, it's really hard. It's really hard for a very small organisation to to yeah. frankly get any impact. But um, I think initially what we would aim to do on, on the sort of issues and the and the that we look at, the specific issues, is to raise awareness mm-hmm. that there is a a problem, an issue there in the first place.
0: Mm.
1: Uh so it's this kind of agenda setting thing, uh, and raising awareness of what's actually happening. And then secondly, yeah. um you you want to feel that you you want people to feel empowered that they can make a difference themselves mm. both institutions and uh, individuals so it's about taking an awareness that there's a problem and 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 encouraging facilitating people to to change their practice or do guidance or new legislation or whatever and um, you know because we can't do that you know, we we can only kind of nudge and influence and and yeah. and so on, and yeah. usually these are very complex issues with many different things that could be done by different people to improve the situation.
0: Great, thank you. And um, there's a question I like to ask to everybody that I interview, and that's that's again it's linked to the impact of of what you hope your work will be able to achieve, but. Just hypothetically, if you had a room that you could fill with 50 people and you had half an hour to speak to them, who would you be putting in that room and what would you be saying to them?
1: Uh, I'd put um, government ministers in, special advisors, senior civil servants, judges, magistrates, and I would try to influence them not to think that those who commit crime are making a rational individual choice to commit mm. that crime mm. and so yeah. I, I I haven't put uh, defendants or lawyers in that room because I think they already are on board with, with that so yeah. I'm yeah. putting in the room people who's uh, kind of Beliefs and attitudes uh, I would see uh, would want to influence differently to where they are at the mm. moment.
0: Yeah. No, great. Yeah. So be particularly targeted at those in power that have the ability to, to make the decisions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah. I think that'd be a really interesting thing. <laughs> Hopefully, you get a chance to do that and with, maybe with one of your reports at some point. Great. Well, Lastly, I'm sure other people listening, just as I have been really interested in what you have to say. And so if people want to follow your work or get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: I mean, there there is Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter, but as listeners probably know we're on Twitter, it's a pretty blunt instrument in terms of real dialogue. Uh, I post a blog nearly every week on LinkedIn where you can comment or you know look out for our events where we can have a proper discussion and and look at the website as well
0: great Penelope thank you so much for coming to speak with me today
1: it's been a pleasure
0: well good luck with the report I hope um I hope it gets read and downloaded a lot and that yeah um yeah good luck with everything else that you've got planned
1: thank you very much
0: Okay. Thanks for listening. From now on, there'll be a new podcast every second week rather than every week as it has started to take over my working life a little bit, but it's been all worth it because of the great conversations that have been had. And thank you so much to everybody who has sent me kind feedback or posted on Twitter. And if you found the pod interesting, please just share it with somebody else who you think might also find it interesting. Cheers.